during a retreat with my teacher, Sotani Rinpoche, I remember somebody asking, in response to misconduct that people had experienced with sexual misconduct that people had experienced with um, with a Tibetan teacher they asked how do you know when somebody is enlightened and he said first of all if anybody ever tells you that you're they're enlightened ask them to jump off a cliff And what that means is that if one is enlightened, then in the Buddhist perspective, there is no self and there is nothing to defend. And so if you jumped off a cliff, you could fly or you could drop, but your body would not be harmed. And that is also what they mean in the Yoga Sutras, the book three, when they talk about the cities or accomplishments, they have to do with not control of the elements, but an understanding of the true nature of the elements and of the true nature of this reality that we experience as dual. We experience this reality in three dimensions. Our eyes interpret the energy molecules of what we're looking at. And our brain creates concepts. And this is the human experience. Yet, if you believe that this experience of outer reality is not real, meaning it is a projection of your own mind or not of your own mind, of universal mind, of which you are a part and are projecting your piece of the story, then that is why someone appearing in human form as an awakened being would be able to walk through a wall or part waters of the ocean or be burned and not have a, be burned in a fire without actually burning. And there are stories from the past about these kind of marvelous feats of yogis in many different places. But as we moved into the age of reason or intellect, where we rely almost solely on our intellect, if we cannot, if we cannot prove it with our sensory organs, then it's not true. That is the religion we call science. 
And yet there are many things that we experience that we cannot validate through science. And it doesn't only have to do with having instruments that are sensitive enough. The only instrument that is sensitive enough to perceive reality as it really is, is you. You already have that, in Sanskrit it is called buddhi, which is the root of Buddha, that intelligence, and that intelligence can be used to master this virtual reality of samsara, or that intelligence can shine itself back on the truth of reality. If we only have this intelligence and we only hone that intelligence, then we lose the connection to our emotional self or the subtle body, the energetic body. If we are always solidifying the energy that we, that we perceive is outer, outside of us, if we're constantly solidifying that, like freezing it into um, something that we can only touch and see and hear and measure, then we are not caring for the energy body. We are not allowing the energy body the freedom to do what it does, which is to be born, to manifest, to abide, to live, and to pass away, to die. That is the essence of the energy that we perceive. And as the quantum physicists are, are able to actually show in a way that is demonstrating to us through that religion of science that this is true. I heard a physicist who was speaking on, on being with Krista Tippett. And he said that the experiments that they've done with the large um, particle accelerators, where they accelerate very, very small, the smallest particles that they can, um, then they can use, um, that they're able to perceive and, and use in this experiment, when they collide them together, that um, there is not a pattern to the results. Um, he used the example of a choose-your-own-adventure book, which I remember from um, my youth, where you um, would come to a, a page and it would say, do you want to do this or do you want to do this? So it would give you maybe two choices, and then depending on which choice that you, t that you took, which you could also describe as karma, choice, 
but um, that would determine the, the rest of the story. And uh, what this physicist was saying is, is that there's almost an infinite number of, um, of possibilities. And this is why um, there is this theory of uh, string theory of multi multiverses. I don't pretend to understand all of that. To me, a lot of that theory, really it's philosophy, because a lot of these things, like a lot of the things that Einstein talked about, or they aren't things that we actually can perceive, and we may not ever be able to perceive them with an outer instrument. In the past, thousands of years ago, Spiritual seekers sought the answer to these same, same questions that we see in science, but they sought them inside rather than outside, with an understanding that there is no real inside and outside, and that our perception of a physical being, of an individual, that actually everything that is in our world, our cosmos, is contained within what we experience as a self. And every particle of what we perceive is a hologram for the entire universe. And so by investigating and perceiving the truth of reality at the very smallest particle you can also perceive the reality at the macro level. In Buddhism, and this is according to the experience of the Buddha or those who are awakened, that's what that term implies. Buddha is the awakened one, intellig awakened intelligence, that when you, when you look that nothing that you can perceive is permanent. And that has to go that that has to do with what I said earlier of everything is born, abides, and dies. And that's that what that means is that there is no permanence. They're impermanent, everything. And the suffering or dissatisfaction that we feel as humans is that state of change, of constant change, constant flux, and the lack of control that we have over that flux, that change. This whole experience in 2020, so many people are so anxious to get rid of 2020 and the experiences of 2020. To me, 2020 was one of the most powerful experiences of my life because it demonstrated the power of that state of impermanence, that things can change for better and for worse and for no, you know, no response. Um, uh, in a moment, and our 
lack of control over these seemingly external events. I have felt for some time that the only thing that I have the possibility of controlling is my own mind. That's it. And what that means is my own actions, my own speech, and my own mind, my own thoughts and emotions. And where the rubber really hits the road is when you have an event which feels like jumping off a cliff. I was doing um, personal retreat for the last two weeks, 10 days. And um, I was beginning to feel a sense of not mastery, but feel like, oh, I'm really getting this. I'm really understanding this. I'm really getting this. And then um, a very dear friend of mine left me a video message. And the contents of what she um, relayed in this video message were shocking to me. You could relate it to any experience that you've had where you um, unexpected, um, you've lost your job. You, like, you weren't worried about your job at all and then suddenly your boss calls you in and says, I'm so sorry, we're having to let you go. Or a partner um, also saying, I'm sorry, I don't want to be with you anymore. Or losing somebody suddenly, somebody dying that you love very much or your whole world changing overnight um, with a pandemic virus. And it's in that shock that we have an experience of reality if we're willing to abide in that state for any amount of time. And the first reaction I had was my normal reaction of dissociation, of checking out. Oh, I don't want to be, that's, that's not part of my cozy uh, environment that I've set up. <laughs> no. Then the next reaction, which was actually progress for me, was um, anger, aversion. Why are, you, why are you saying this? Why are you doing this to me? And in my attempt to talk to this person at first, I realized that I was just trying to cover my ass. That was it. I was just trying to gain back my cozy territory and doing that by projecting it onto that other person. And so I asked for a reprieve for talking about it because I felt like I'm going to harm, I'm already harming myself and harming this other person by talking about it from this place. So I need to, you know, draw back from this. And each day I would 
I would get to a point where I'd be like, oh, I'm, I'm okay with this now. I'm not, I'm not reacting to it. But then when I actually brought up the, what happened, the words and the, and the, and the actual incident, then that, those feelings of anger would, would come up again. And, um, On the one hand, I felt like so there's some insight in there of, of being someone who hasn't had very um, healthy personal boundaries in terms of um, emotional content. And that you might call an empath or a sensitive person or even a psychic person. Somebody who's porous and who's able to um, feel, actually feel and experience what other people are feeling and experiencing. And that is a lack of boundaries. Because by going into somebody else's experience, you're actually invading their territory. And in some ways, it's uh, an instrument of control an instrument of wanting to know what that other person is feeling so that you can um, control how you interact with them and also a coping mechanism of focusing on the other person and, their, and the outside issues instead of looking at yourself. Because I know this person dearly loves me and would never intentionally try and harm me um, it was an opportunity for me to look at what had happened. And just as I was kind of reconstructing my territory of my ego again, um, I started an online teaching with my teacher, Sotni Rinpoche, who is broadcasting from Nepal for a week and pretty much just answering practice questions. And He's so kind and compassionate that he's never really, he never really challenges people in a way that's, uh, that has them bring their hackles up. And I've seen in other teachers that I've studied with. Um, it kind of seep, his teachings kind of seep in those gaps you know, that are between your desire to solidify your experience and yourself. And in the face of that, I was unable to, um, to accept that state that I had started creating of recreating my cozy practice state. People were asking about different meditation experiences of, of bliss, for example. And he basically said, you know, be wary of those because the, the actual state of enlightenment, the natural state which we all already have as a background for our 
virtual reality experience that it isn't entertaining in the same way as we experience reality now. And so any time that you try to freeze an experience, meaning not allowing the freedom for that flow, then you know that that's not the natural state. And I'm beginning to have a gratitude for that experience of being thrown off the cliff by my dear friend. She didn't throw me off the cliff. I threw myself off the cliff. Actually, she said, let's go fly off this cliff. And I, I backed away from the cliff and um, got back in the car. Because that's what we do. That's what we do. And our experience of having this image of ourselves challenged feels invasive. We want to believe that we have, that these secrets that we hold are secrets and that we can project another uh, avatar of who we are into reality and just hold on to these, this, this, these sides of ourselves that we feel like are dark or unacceptable. But that's not the truth. And in my own experience, when I began talking about these parts of myself, these dark parts of myself that I didn't feel um, were part of the image that I wanted to project to the world, I started talking about them in class as a teacher in front of people that I didn't know very well. I started teaching, well, I began talking about these things, of course, with people, my dear friends that I, um, that I trust. And then I practiced talking about these things in a more public forum. And over and over again, my experience has been every time that I bring up some part of myself that I've been wanting to hide, that somebody comes up to me and says, I have that experience as well. Thank you so much for bringing it up. It makes me feel like I'm not alone. And if you really think about it, if you really, if you really consider the experiences that you've had in your life, the people that you feel most intimate with, that you feel the most intimate, unconditional love with, are those people that you feel like you can show everything to and that they may not always like it and it's it's not like this love it, you know everything's love and light that they could say uh, i didn't i didn't like it um or this really hurt me when you know when you said this and that you can 
communicate and talk about it. In Hawaiian culture, they have something called ho'oponopono. And pono means truth or righteousness. And I was reading about it, um, how it was conducted in the past. And this was a, a book on Hawaiian healing herbs. And so they were describing that the uh, kahuna, uh, the, the healer, you might, might think of it like, a, um, like the, the community healer, um, that if somebody were sick in a family, that, uh, that healer would be called. And the healer would say, I want you to, your family to conduct this process of ho'oponopono. And what ho'oponopono is, is that everybody who has any sort of negative feelings or experiences coming up would share those and, um, and be listened to. And that that group, whatever that group was, whether it was a family or a community, would continue sharing until there was nothing more to share. That there was no more feeling of, um, of hope or fear. And if the person was still in the family was still sick, and this, is, and this is acknowledging the power of these emotional states on the physical health of the body. And so if the person was still st- sick, then the healer um, would come. And um, oftentimes they would uh, ask the family to gather um, you know, foods and create a feast for the negative spirits or conditions that were causing the, um, the issue in the person. And the family would gather all the resources and create this feast, which goes to another um, beautiful experience of feeling like you could give all your resources to, for the health of somebody in, in your family or community and that you would still be taken care of, that you're not hoarding anything because you know that if you need anything, that you, if you come up short in six months' time, that somebody else in the community who has abundance will share with you. And so that healer would do certain ceremonies and talk to the person and maybe even do another Ho'oponopono process with, um, with that person. And so in that process, right, there's, within that family, within that community, there's nothing held back. And there's an acknowledgement that any sort of negative feelings are going to have an effect on somebody in that community. 
And this is, for me, I was not brought up or trained to deliver my authentic self to the world. In fact, I was rewarded for not doing so. And so for being smart and put together and independent and all the things that so many people in Western countries are rewarded for. We ask our children to be, um, instead of emotionally intelligent, to just be an intellectually intelligent and to be independent, to take care of themselves instead of uh, relying on their caretakers or community to take care of them and to have a sense of freedom as a child to explore the world and not have to uh, hold things together. When I was a kindergarten teacher, right after college, I moved to Japan without any other plan. I just moved to Japan. And I was teaching, uh, the first year I taught at a conversational English school, and it was all ages. And what I re the, but the people, the, the humans that I really liked working with were the like four and five-year-olds. Um, and so I ended up teaching kindergarten at an international school in Tokyo. And, uh, you know, the requirements for teaching English in Japan are pretty much, you, you have to be a native English speaker and have a four-year college degree, and that's it. So um, I had never taught before, especially children. Uh, as I go back through my ancestry, I have many, many ancestors who were teachers, though. And so... I now know that that teaching is part of my, my heritage and part of my current lifetime. But uh, I did do some research, you know, on, uh, on how to, you know, childhood education, but, but really I was just relying on my own intuition and trying not to go back to, um, you know, what... I had been taught or how I had experienced things. And what I really felt is that um, the experience that I really would have liked to have as a child is just that freedom to just play and be. And I did have that experience. Um, I can remember uh, many times that um, my brother and I just played all day long or I would read a book all day long um, over the summer or the weekend. So um, I did have that experience as a child of not feeling like my time um, had to be uh, used wisely, you know, used in a way. Um, now I think of education many times, I feel like the kids have to be, you have to be instructing them on learning a certain thing all the time. But what I could see so clearly in the, those uh, four- and five-year-olds was they were learning every moment of their waking life, that the experiences that they had, um, playing with certain toys or acting out certain things, or um, when we went to the park, act, interacting with the natural world, with their bodies, how their bodies moved, um, and interacting with each other. And they were interacting with... Um, 
other children who came from all different kinds of countries and backgrounds and um, spoke different languages. And so, but it wasn't a, it wasn't a, it wasn't an unbounded um, accommodation, um, especially with the kids that were having issues that they, they really needed to feel like there was a boundary. There was a boundary, a physical boundary, an emotional boundary, a boundary of where their behavior um, would, be, would be noticed. And so that was my role as a teacher to create sort of that safe boundary in which they would feel like they could explore. And I remember some people would come. It was a very, it was a small building in Tokyo, and we were, it was a, it was a house that they had split into two sides. And there was younger kids of like two and three-year-olds on one side, and then on our side was the four- and five-year-old kindergartners. And uh, it was not a very big space. And once in a while, somebody would come and while the kids were playing and remark at how loud it was and how chaotic it's, it appeared because I would allow them to just take out everything, take out whatever they liked, and then we practiced also putting it away at the end. But I didn't uh, try and control their activity very much besides violence of any kind. Um, and that just felt healthy to me. That just felt nourishing to me. And that's just part of my personality as well. I actually have a real aversion to, for better and for worse, to trying to control other people and the way that they are, or the things that they do. That just doesn't feel comfortable to me, including with animals. And um, people would probably say that I'm too accommodating with my animals. Some people might say that, but um, I don't feel comfortable encroaching on another being's freedom to express themselves. And so what I came to in this situation with my friend was that, and I told her that I needed to I needed to sit with my feelings. I had to accommodate my own feelings um, until I had no fear of whatever she could express because I didn't want her to have to hold herself back. That's not part of our authentic friendship. I want her to feel free to fully express herself even if what she says harms me accidentally because that's, that's a true relationship. And feeling like 
the other person is going to remain in the relationship and not run away from the relationship just because there's a difficulty. Deepens the relationship, in my experience. And what I see now is that she gave me a, an incredible opportunity to experience that state of no ground, of no self. And while I have definitely begun that construction process of reestablishing my ground, myself, I know that the next time that this happens, that perhaps I will have an opportunity to jump off that cliff and be open to the infinite possibilities of what might come after that. I'm just going to add some parting comments from the oracle Chuying Maesis. And if you're not interested in hearing the truth, then you should shut this off right now. I'll give you a moment. The truth is that if you are, if you are continuously attempting to defend your territory or you believe that you have territory to defend and that you're entitled to anything, then you are going to greatly suffer through this time of dismantlement. I listen to many different astrologers, both Western and evolutionary and Vedic astrologers, and every single one of them is saying that we are going through a, especially in the United States, but because the United States is one of the dominant powers in the world now, the entire world, a dismantlement of the existing power structure. And so um, it is it is it is a time of chaos, and it is a time where those infinite possibilities are are present. I use the words, and another astrologer I follow use the same words. It's like fifty-two pickup, which is a joke, where you hold a deck of cards where there's fifty-two cards, and you say to somebody, "Do you want to play fifty-two pickup?" And if they say yes, you toss the cards in the air. And right now, all the cards are in the air. So you cannot possibly know where the story is going. And because we are all interconnected, this story is not controlled by just one of us. It is controlled by all of us. Our combined actions, thoughts, speech which is why I feel so called to do my spiritual practices right now of purifying myself because I know the power that they will have on everything as we go through this state of chaos. And that practice 
of feeling ungrounded, of feeling like you've lost your territory. That is the feeling of chaos, but it's also possible that that is the awakened state.